ashutosh thank you so much for uh, doing this uh, uh, the idea was to talk about asset allocation today it's a, it's a topic that i think people talk a lot about but uh, from our own experience with interacting with investors on uh, coin or mutual fund platform i don't think i think there are a lot of misconceptions about what it is and also at some level it also sounds like a very exotic topic uh, yeah. it it has this very academic sounding uh, tone to it uh, but but at the end of the day it's just you know something investors need to know to you know get them from point a to point b um so the idea was to you know pick your brains about this very important topic because i think investors make a lot of unwarranted and really simplistic mistakes about asset allocation i think a few uh, having a little bit of background can help them uh, fine tune their asset allocation a far better way um so you had you had uh, spoken about this at uh, the cfa uh, very recently i just watched the talk and i was just uh, i have to admit it, i was just mind blown because there wasn't anything that good in the indian context so the i just figured i'd quickly reach out to you folks and you know get you on to pick your brains about it so thank, thank you so much for uh, taking the time and agreeing to do this thanks for having me looking uh, forward to this discussion thank you um so uh, before we dive into this very esoteric and fancy topic and you know talk about correlations etc like who are you and how did you end up where you are so um i'm ashutosh bhargav actually i had the research and uh, I'm also a fund manager in a few diversified and uh, some asset location schemes at Nippon India Mutual Fund. I've been uh, working in this company for more than 16 years now. Uh, before that, for slightly more than two years, I worked with uh, J.P. Morgan, um, and so total market experience is 18 and a half years for me. Wow! And this 18 and a half years, I have had. a uh, privilege to you know to start my career with uh, more of a macro strategist stroke economist and with time with uh, you know right opportunities i started to work on uh, the fundamental side and then eventually uh, this whole uh, rule based or evidence based quant based investing i think uh, that systematic investing became uh, something which i really cherish and enjoy now so spent like 8 10 years in that and some of the funds that we run um, um where i try to express uh, you know my myself and the learning which i have as far as you know uh, evidence based and rule based investing are concerned uh and um, this is where i am you know and, and as far as you know the research responsibility goes you know i manage but as one of the largest by side uh, fundamental research team we cover close to 490 stocks um and at a house level we are known for uh, high quality uh, bottom up ideation so it's mix of everything that i do and um, genuinely glad that i am being given this responsibility correct in 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 this entire journey from uh, macros because that's a very uh, again that's far broader than what most people assume how did this how did you in this journey land up in this uh asset allocation uh, uh destination so to speak like how did that transition happen so to be honest you know asset allocation is something which is uh there part of investing for time immemorial right okay. but the indian context till 10 years ago uh in as indian asset management context there was no uh, uh serious thought about uh, coming up with this kind of offering so it was actually at the uh, at the uh, hand of in the hands of these distributors bankers 
advisors uh, who were doing this for their respective clients but at a at amc levels so or fund house level uh, there was no such offerings till 10 years ago uh, and uh, you know last 8 10 years there has been a lot of evolution in terms of this becoming a separate asset class in itself between pure debt and pure equity which are pre- predominantly two different asset classes and uh, you know last 3 4 years um, there has been more versions of asset location so initially the whole industry started with diversification into two different asset classes which is debt and equity <laughs> and then now we have these uh, uh, more options in terms of multi asset funds where you are not only investing in more than two asset classes three four asset classes but also there are opportunities products where there is an allocation systematic allocation within an asset class so between large cap small cap mid cap also uh, where at any point of time investor should be um, those products those wrappers are also now available so i think last 5 7 years there has been massive uh, i would say uh, recognition and 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 growth as far as uh, asset location strategies at fund house levels and and i think um, um, as far as you know what i am concerned uh, you know 10 years back i got introduced to this whole world of quant or evidence based investing right. and uh, when we think of you know uh, really applying your macro thinking how markets work what what works at any particular part of the cycle how you time the markets in different asset classes i think uh, these were the topics which i was always interested in uh, you know since 2005 but at an opportunity level since there was no scope at an amc level till 2015 uh, there was no platform to express and then um, once it became more mainstream uh, organization launched few strategies and um, that's where you know i could uh, make some contribution in terms of you know uh, come up with few uh, two or three products in in that uh, sense so um, it is not something which i had planned or something uh, with the evolution of industry i got an opportunity and perhaps i had some skill set at that point of time to take advantage of those opportunities got it no i, I i'm personally a big fan of uh, call it let's uh, one fund solutions you know uh, popular moniker is moniker is of course hybrid funds but i think um, like you rightly said for a vast majority of people i think uh, in their asset allocation as we'll get down to uh, they provide a lot of tax efficient solutions for people to express Uh, their holistic views um before before we uh, you know dive deeper like at the simplest possible terms uh, what is asset allocation like if i were a 5 year old kid and yeah. i was asking what does it mean how do you explain that to me see asset allocation is a process with which you uh, make your journey of wealth creation uh, less problematic and more enjoyable it is as simple as that now um it it creates it it ensures that your journey is less bumpy so you reach your destination but with minimal stress <laughs> and therefore you don't stop yourself from achieving your longer term goals and you don't get out of uh 
that journey because it is unpleasant to you. Right. So this is very simplistically what asset allocation do. And in terms of you know the practical example, uh, see there are different asset classes, and these asset classes take leadership from time to time, year to year. There will be a period where equities outperform, say fixed income. So let's talk about only two asset classes: right. fixed income and equities. So. there are times when equities have outperformed fixed income for many quarters and right. in contrast it has also happened where equities have underperformed fixed income for many quarters now that leadership change keeps happening and it's not something which is you know very easily predictable but what is for sure uh, is that that leadership will not be constant that leadership will keep changing and this happens because of variety of reasons that we will you know discuss uh, henceforth um, but the whole uh, basis of asset allocation stroke diversification is that uh, you try to identify periods and asset classes where at you can shift from one to the another and in that process um, um, you reduce the drawdowns in your overall asset assets or aum or portfolio and in doing so um, the whole uh, journey of investing becomes less painful so i think uh, at a basic level it is uh, trying to be with the right asset classes at the right time through some process systems and techniques got it makes sense i think i think the Uh, your line about getting from uh, one point to another uh, and reducing the bumpiness i think that behavioral aspect of asset allocation as we'll get down to i think it's a it's it's highly highly underrated um uh, the one of the hallmarks of how markets evolve is progressively access to asset uh, uh, various asset classes becomes easier like for example uh if you went back to pre 2000 uh, i think the only asset class which was easily accessible for most retail investors was just direct equities and then uh, thanks to mutual funds uh, uh, fixed income or debt became easier and progressively gold so and so forth and today at least in the developed markets it's gotten to such an extent that you can invest in fractional art fractional fancy mm-hmm. cars yeah. uh, and what not private markets mm-hmm. etc but at least in the indian context it, we we still not reached there but uh, considering asset allocation is the process of you know it's like uh, it's like a jigsaw puzzle where you assemble multiple things to make sense of a whole what what are the major asset classes that should be part of uh, every retail investors uh, uh, asset allocation mix like what are the major asset classes we are talking about and why uh, we'll get to the why later but let's start with the major asset classes that should be part of the mix so i think the two aspects which are very critical what kind of asset classes uh, which at a you know at a broader level investor should consider e those asset classes should have a longer history right uh, and it, it defined characteristics in terms of variability of returns and uh, you know uh, the risk which comes with each asset class so it ha- for that you need a longer history you can't have many fads which keep coming in terms of asset classes like the example you gave of art or maybe some of the cryptocurrencies they don't have history right So Dogecoin is out of the question. Right, because it does not have history <laughs> at this point of. Got it. Second, those asset classes should exhibit behavior of 
less correlation or negative correlation to really add value right essentially what we are talking about is if two asset classes are giving same returns in say three time uh, three year time period for example right but the journeys are very different one year one asset class does well second year the other, other asset class does well you make the same returns but the journeys are different right. if we combine those asset classes in one you will not be too uncomfortable in terms of where you are at any point of time in your journey so your variability of portfolio reduces and returns are similar to each of them and sometimes better so this is the whole idea and now which of the asset classes to include in that context equities fixed income and commodities because these are the asset classes which are liquid have long history and has lot of familiar familiarity with mass majority and obviously uh, they take leadership their characteristics are bit different from each other so you get that diversification attributes in terms of low or negative correlations so this is where you know uh, uh, a mainstream asset location uh, you know uh, product should have these kind of assets under it got it you mentioned correlation i think it's 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 a very fancy term for most people uh, yeah. because a lot of people think that all asset classes in their portfolio should go up <laughs> at the same time otherwise they're doing it wrong yeah, now you're yeah. telling the opposite like why should i bother about correlations just yeah. dumb it down as much as possible so basically if you think about it there are um, as i said you know uh this year take the example 2023 okay. and then we will contrast it to 2022 now 2022 world was about to end because of <laughs> war and other stuff right uh, and uh, interest rates are going to go to 10% for example right? right now that's that was an environment where there were a lot of fear and gold and as, as an asset class did phenomenally well right? Right. no one actually gave equities any chance in 2022 now if you look at 2023 just in contrast it turned out to be a year where even the most optimistic person uh, at the start of this year won't have imagined the kind of returns right. which would be made in the broader market okay. but at the same time the best performing asset class of last year which was gold has meaningfully underperformed equities in this year right. so this is a clear recent example of how l- you know uh, leadership changes and this is what in real life uh, low correlation means that at both the asset classes are not working at the same time in fact many a time they are going in the opposite direction right. uh, so this is where the value of diversification emerges got it so uh, it's like uh, five fingers are not the same so but ultimately put together they get the job done i think that is another problem at least uh, i've personally seen with investors yeah. they they look at the performance of the individual asset classes and not really as a whole uh, when looked at in isolation of course most of the times most of the asset classes in your portfolio really make sense but yeah. when you look at a portfolio level i think everything becomes uh, obvious yeah. um but uh, just just extending on the question of uh, you know uh, winners changing as in uh, the asset classes change the sub asset classes or sectors inside uh, those change but if you if you were to take a, a step back and zoom out a little and talk about what do we know about the performance of uh, 
asset classes in the Indian market history? Like what do you know? Because I think in, in one of your talks, you rightly mentioned that for most of the asset classes in India, we don't really have a long history. That the US true. markets have a history going up to, I think, uh, as far back as 1800s. Absolutely. Our history really begins with Sensex in, yeah. in 75 or 80. So what do we know about uh, the return patterns of the three major asset classes that you mentioned, equities, debt and uh, commodities? Sure. So uh, if you think of these asset classes and then I'll come to India, how these asset classes have behaved because there's some sure. nuances pertaining to India. Got it. Um, equities in general has performed better than fixed income and even commodities in longer time frames. So by commodities, you mean gold? Not necessarily. I would. I was. Uh, I was coming to that when Got people it. think that commodities means gold because this is where <laughs> most of the uh, because gold provides you the required diversification. Okay. Its characteristics is very different from many other commodities. Also, forget equities. Right. But most other commodities, I actually are very similar to in risk and return profiles are very similar to equities. They are risk on assets. They they reflect the global, uh, uh, you know, demand patterns. They reflect uh, global liquidity condition, financial condition, so on. So equities and many industrial commodities, base metals, etc. If they exhibit, um, you know, a positive correlation, wherein gold and equities, gold and fixed income, they exhibit low to negative correlation, right? So gold is in that sense a different commodities and has tremendous value as a uh, diversification asset, right? Uh, right. Unlike other commodities. Right. Now, but the bigger point is that equities has delivered and perhaps may likely to deliver better returns because equity by nature is um, is a reward for the extra risk these companies takes an individual take, right. uh, and and they. Uh, this is a result of the profitability of most as efficient businesses and that gets reflected into the market caps of those businesses right debt is a part of one of the part of the capital location of various businesses and that's an ingredient to enhance the return of the end investors or corporates right uh, so it has to be uh, lesser performing asset class vis-a-vis -vis equity in a longer term time frame. But yeah. obviously, the flip side to that is there is higher assurance of getting your capital back, albeit in lower returns versus equity in fixed income, right? So it has more assurance of return of capital versus equity, but it has lesser return on capital versus equity. So these are the basic difference and as I said you know commodities offer um, very different kind of uh, uh, elements and uh, value addition depending upon which commodity you are adding in your portfolio but uh, let's uh, assume that here we are discussing gold as a commodity and gold has demonstrated tremendous negative correlation uh, amazing diversification value now, nobody knows why gold outperforms, honestly speaking. <laughs> uh, but the reality is that when there is a fear, right. fear related to some kind of policy error, either on the monetary policy side, fiscal policy side, some uncertainty around 
the environment that's where you know people find refuge in gold and it has worked uh, for a very long period and in a very brief period you know bitcoin tried to steal its thunder as an alternative to conventional asset but the jury is still out whether this crypto will be an alternative to gold as an alternative asset class case so these are the three asset classes packing order is very simple debt uh, scores the lowest but it comes with the lowest volatility as well equity perhaps the highest uh, return uh, generating but with more volatility gold is somewhere in between um, i would say uh, there's no assurance assurance of return like fixed income right. but it does not have these wild uh, gyrations and uh, you know volatility uh, that sometimes is associated with equities got it so with, with that context of you know what asset classes are what are the key asset classes that should part of your asset allocation thinking um so what like you know uh, i think somebody once said there are 100 ways to heaven so what are the different styles of asset allocation to get from uh, my point a to my point b when it when it comes to asset allocation as a concept uh, what are the broad styles that we are thinking that asset allocation can be expressed to my mind there are two main styles which conventionally people opt for right one is what i call a top down approach uh, if with your expertise understanding you can determine where are you in the business cycle capital market cycle because different asset classes behave differently in different inflation and growth environment so to again simplify it what we have uh, observed and there is a lot of uh, logic behind it is that whenever inflation is higher and growth is also good okay you don't make much money in fixed income because this is an environment where interest rates are rising and as you are aware there is a negative right. correlation between return expectation or expected return from fixed bonds uh and the path of interest rates right it is also a sign that economy is not in recession because in recession you don't see a combination of both inflation and growth going up and nominal growth going up typically this is a time where uh, confidence is higher activity is higher and that's where profitability in this whole cycle is in a great, great shape when inflation and growth both are declining it's a disinflationary or deflationary period this is where interest rates are generally being cut bond investors get more than the coupon returns they get so they get something extra in the form of capital gains and typically this is a time where businesses are taking a step back there is some contraction in activity hiring sentiment profitability and this is where equity prices generally remain subdued now this is not as simple because you know there is always uh, a cycle which will be uh, a bit more nuanced not as straightforward but typically bond and equity in that sense are poles apart in terms of what will work in one part of economic cycle versus the other now typically a macro investor try to identify where we are and where we are going in the subsequent few quarters in terms of inflation and growth outlook and depending on that 
moves from equity and debt and within equities also whether they want to be in a more defensive kind of equities whether they want to take illiquidity risks by going into smaller size companies or not all those things are part of this this simple framework of inflation and growth okay. nothing else now it is easier said than done because honestly speaking there are two three problems to this approach one um, history repeats but uh, history doesn't repeat it rhymes so rhymes. post post uh, covid it's not even rhyming basically we are we are yeah, finding not for the first time investors in 100 days have found out that even fixed income can give you minus 50% you can lose 50% of your capital investing in government securities right that has made possible for the first time so this is one thing second thing is you know even if you uh, think that you can forecast and you know that humility about future is very difficult to forecast not hasn't yet sink in Uh, to you if you still continue to forecast what happens is that you know asset class may not behave right. um, the way they should ideally behave in a particular kind of macro environment so for example if i would have given you a very simple equation in 2000 february of 2022 okay so i would have asked bhuvnesh bhai that uh, there is a war going on uh, which is people will say that it, it can lead to a third world war crude oil prices will go to 150 dollar dollar will go to will be up 20% uh i would have called you mad as well you can come down by more than 50% your biggest it companies will crash by 50% or more um and 10 year interest rates in us will go from 1% to 4.5% with the expectation of you know reaching much higher than there tell me where will be sensex on say december of 2023 now i am sure you wouldn't have said that it, this will be at an all time high level not only for large cap but for the whole market and this was something ideally uh, was not expected even if you knew everything about the future so this is a bigger problem with macro that even if you know the future asset classes may behave differently right so therefore uh, you need something else other than being right on macro and the second approach is is everywhere everyone understand um, uh, that uh, valuation is another aspect so there is a saying in our industry buy low and sell high very simple no, very simple now what what low and high we are talking about it means you buy more you increase allocation and in equity is more right when what is low the valuation which is the parameter of how expensive or cheap equities as an asset classes you should allocate more when market is cheap you should allocate less or make book some profit take money off the table from equities get into the asset classes like fixed income when valuations are higher because typically there is a cycle of valuation and that's what it's called boom bust cycle or right. market cycle so from over reaction to from one side to the other side this is a cycle pattern that time immemorial we have seen uh the and the valuation parameter typically people look at is price to earning ratio i'm sure 
you would yeah. have heard and our uh, audience would have heard that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have a big problem with this approach also. I'll tell you why. <laughs> you. Uh, because what are we talking about here is something which I'm, I find it a bit, bit puzzling. Think of a PE ratio. Um, we say today's market is cheaper or expensive versus last 20 years history. Right? Right. This is the history India has, proper history. Um, and we take today's integer price to earning ratio, say 20 times, and we plot it against historical average. And we say today's market is cheap or expensive, how much cheap, how much expensive. We try to quantify it. And that's how we allocate our equities versus fixed income based on that. Now think of it is that, you know, um, the only truth about nifty PE ratio or any other indices PE ratio is that it is nifty and it has 50 stocks, but everything else is very different, right? So think of nifty of 2023, composition of today, compare it with composition of 2030, compare it with composition of 2003. What is the similarity there? It's Nothing. different. It is huge difference at 2-3 right. level. There is a difference in terms of what kind of companies are there. Public company, private company, multinational company. Today's 50 stocks, do they comprise more cyclical sectors, more asset heavy sectors? Because typically cyclical sector, asset heavy sectors, they exhibit more variability in earning and therefore we pay less to them and therefore the valuations are typically lesser than businesses where, where the earnings are smooth. We call it structural businesses, sometimes defensive businesses, where there's huge predictability of earnings every two, three years, right? So if you have lesser cyclical businesses, high ROE businesses, asset light businesses, obviously that index should come on higher multiple, right? So when we are comparing, and there can be other factors also. For example, interest rates. Interest rate is a classic example. So today, if interest rate by any bank, so you take say HDFC Bank or SBI, if on Monday they they cut the interest rates by two and a half percent, and the right. FD rate from seven and a half percent become five percent, and that means the opportunity cost for the investor has come down very sharply. So the propensity, the inclination to take slightly higher risk for higher, slightly higher return would go up. On in contrast, if tomorrow or, you know, say again, there is an example, Monday, interest rate by these banks, they go up to 12% FD rate. Now then there will be much fewer people who would be willing to take extra risk to generate extra return because they are getting very, very high returns in fixed income, safe assets, right? So interest rates are typically ignored while some of it gets captured in DCF, which people do in terms of when they discount future earnings. But then from a portfolio construct perspective or opportunity cost perspective, how, what would be the behavior of the end customer, end investor, given the prevailing interest rate, I think that is not captured in PE ratio, right? In some sense. So I think I have a, problem with it because whose temperature you are taking and uh, you know you are putting thermometer uh, to whom so I think there is a big difference in that and so you know I don't think it's taking the right temperature and if it is not taking the right temperature it will give the perhaps give the faulty signal in terms of whether I should be and how much I should be allocated in equities right got it no I, I'm, I'm glad you touched on the valuation because it's um, the the 
uh, most popular chart in retail investing circles is nifty returns versus nifty p ratio <laughs> it it always goes up you sell there there's always a line at the top there's always yeah. a line which follows this thing yeah. uh, i'm glad you touched on it because uh, but but then there is this general notion at least among the slightly smarter people in finance that uh, starting valuations matter in the sense that uh, again going back to the dumb chart about nifty pe versus nifty returns if i plot pe versus returns i can see that when nifty pe is low uh, uh, the the forward returns the future returns tend to be higher and vice versa like what am i missing in that? and also there's this uh, if i were to extend that line of thought uh, uh, some people have said that the cape ratio the cyclically adjusted price mm-hmm. ratio uh if you expand if you extend it let's say 7 or 10 years into the future generally it tends to have a higher predictive power of forward returns if that's the case what am i missing and why shouldn't sure, sure. i uh, uh, express my view based on valuations so this particular relationship of valuation and expected future returns only holds true okay at extremes okay. for example if you if you take forward pe which is 12 month forward pe as an inti- as a factor valuation factor and based on that you will s- s- look at the forward returns odds based on the history that if this forward pe if i would have invested what is my potential forward return rate between 15 times to 19 times there is absolute randomness in terms of where you come in at what pe you come in and what is your future returns you just broke a, broke a lot of hearts <laughs> <laughs> only below above ni- 19 and a half times right it start to make sense in terms of valuations become important variable for your returns in over the next 2 3 years would it be fair to say most of the time the market is in that random zone most of the time be- only extremes comes during period of extreme exuberance and despondency extreme you know uh, growth cycles from both the sides and how people overreact there is a huge behavioral uh, argument uh, on both the sides right. but normally pe ratios go up alongside earnings and therefore the ma- return of the market is typically a summation of the earning return right and the difference in pe ratio from 8, 15 it becomes 18 there is a 20% shift in pe ratio right? right right and in this journey in next in this when it becomes from 15 to 18 if the earnings have also gone up by 20% as a rule forward basis your returns are slightly more than 40% right it's not in line with the earning and but that does not mean it's a bad market the extremities is where it becomes risky problem is people side valuation integers and sometimes involve in asset allocation uh, models as if it is going to be right in all seasons all the time it is only useful in history as a matter of fact there is absolutely zero to negative and correlation between today's valuation and next one year return starting valuation helps only if you have horizon more than one year so valuation is very important if you are thinking 3 5 years right but there is almost random in terms of you know where you enter and what would would be your return 6 months 12 months down the line because that is not where this uh, real utility of starting valuation comes into the picture 
Got it. Uh, in, in between this top-down style and bottom-up style. So I would, I'll, would it be fair to call the top-down macro style and versus the bottom-up evaluation uh, intensive approach? Possible. Macro, micro, whichever way you want to call it. Got it. Uh, where do this static and dynamic asset allocations come into picture here? So obviously, you know, static means you think equity is going is a better asset class um, versus a fixed income or gold. And I want to be in equities, but I don't want to also witness the drawdowns to an extent which equity as an asset class invariably brings. Right. So I will have higher allocation in equity, lesser allocation in other asset classes. So my returns are better than fixed income. And the volatility is bearable. Right. It's not unbearable. So I'll still remain invested. And uh, I'm happy to compromise some extra return, which comes with 100% equity allocation. So right. that is a static method, right? That you decide which is the asset class, how much. The dynamic asset class is based on either the judgment on where we are in the macro cycle or looking at the valuations, whether they are high or low. Or some other uh, hybrid techniques, strategies, um, wherein you combine more than one variable, two, three, four variable, and try to have a signal which not only works in a longer time time frame, but also in a shorter time frames um, um, does not give you a lot of pain. Because even a, a, a broken clock is right two times in a day. So that's not what you want to do because most of the valuation driven approaches are like that, that I will be right someday, but you are wrong more than 50% of the time. So, and you don't know when your end customer wants to withdraw money, right? So that's something which you are, you can't leave it to, uh, you know, his or her judgment. So a better approach could be a more multidisciplinary approach. This is also dynamic, but this is including factors Come okay. not relying on one factor. Okay. This kind of strategy is diversifying in terms of process level, right? Okay. Uh, so at a signal level, you are not only relying on one thing. There is a diversification, and in that process, in my experience, in my belief, um, you uh, your uh, stress uh, return point or stress taken is actually much better, or risk adjust return much better, both in the shorter and longer term time frame because. At the end of the day, we are discussing people here. Right, right, right. right. Uh, people don't want to see pain of underperformance for for uh, for some time, and this pain threshold is only coming down uh, with with the <laughs> with the, uh, the kind of investor which are coming in in terms yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, more of a instant gratification kind of thing. So uh, I'll just uh, pick your brains a little more on the static asset location. So. If it's it's a relatively easier approach, if I may, uh, I'll make that assumption. So now I don't want, or rather I don't have the ability to, let's say, take uh, top-down calls or bottom-up calls. I'm just uh, relying on the fact that equity on in the long run tends to have a higher returns and fixed income reduces the volatility of my portfolio. So I figure out maybe it's you know, 50-50, 60-40, whatever, whatever it is. But in inside that static asset allocation, at least on the equity sleeve, now there is large, mid cap, uh, small cap. There's factors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, what do we know about uh, the intra asset class performance? And the reason why I'm asking is that if I were to uh, make a choice that static asset allocation, I'd rather having fixed weights 
to asset classes is the right approach for me. Uh, in terms of those intra-sectors, intra-asset classes and also uh, sub-sectors, like what do we know and what should I keep in mind uh, when expressing those views? Honestly, there also leadership keeps changing. Got it. Uh, at two levels, within equities. Okay. If you think of equities in a much broader asset class beyond Indian equities, you will notice two things. Indian market and global market, while in the long term they have similar, you know, similar directional returns, but time to time there will be our market outperforming global market, rest of the world, and we would be underperforming the rest of the world. Yeah. So within equities, this is where you know, uh, time to time there are differences. Um, Indian equities typically does better than global equities, but we are we should also be aware of the fact that the profit pools which India provides is not necessarily the same as the global profit pools. So one way of looking at equity as an asset class is that if you want to really participate in it, you have to also have some exposure in international equity because this in some ways is a very different profit pool and maybe a different asset class if you may. The second thing is when we think of large cap, mid cap, small cap, I don't think it's a right approach beyond the point. So this approach is to, it's fading the relevance to me because um, earlier, what used to happen, the larger companies were better in terms of governance, uh, lesser cyclical. Right. And there was a whole chain in every sector where a smaller company was a part of one value chain and doing as one small work. They were no, there was no unique businesses in smaller size category. It was one chain from large to smaller company. Right. So there was some sense in terms of in a up cycle, you get into the smaller businesses and a down cycle get into uh, relatively safer and larger businesses, more resilient businesses. With time, what I have observed is that now if you look at large cap, mid cap, small cap, they are all three different asset classes in themselves. The profit pool in small cap today is very different from profit pool of large cap. For example, there is this China plus one theory, (laughs) right? Right. And it's a genuine uh, theme. If you had to play this theme in a poster child kind of sector like chemical, there was no way you would have played in large caps till three years ago, one, two, three years ago, right? Everything it was, was a predominantly small a small cap to mid cap kind of uh, story and it, and it it has created tremendous wealth uh, in last seven, eight years. There was no way you could have participated. If you think of larger lenders in the country, right. you can't play India financials by remain investing in small caps, right? Makes sense. Uh, so there are two different to- profit pool we are talking about, which has changed in the last 15 years. So the the line has become thinner in terms of whether there is a value in terms of trying to get into one over the other, right? And maneuver between one over the other. So the better approach is to remain invested. And, and you see, even if you think that it is, yes, the differences still prevail, Simply plotting small cap, mid cap, large cap returns over a longer time frame, you will not notice a lot of differences. You know, point to point, sometimes small cap will look better on a longer term time frame where you are in the cycle. And now today, smaller cap, small cap indexes, perhaps giving slightly higher CAGR return than large cap. But this was not the case three years back. With a longer term time frame, there's not much to choose between any three different size categories. I'm not in that opinion. I think... Five, seven years down the line, people will be talking much lesser. 
mainly because they will there are more disclosure there are much better governance capital allocation standards now even with the small and mid cap companies compared to the large cap there are a lot of sunrise sectors which you can only participate in small cap so there is no harm there is there is no, it's not necessary that small cap valuation has to be at a discount to large cap in us for example for years all together small caps used to uh, uh, you know have much higher valuation or valuation premium than the large caps right so it's not necessary i think india will also evolve it's not large company versus small company it is about good business versus bad business good business management versus bad management so but i have giving you a slightly longer answer but i don't think that's the way to approach this a uh, better approach if you are going to simple to understand simple to manage uh, asset location is diversify at a two level one yes there is difference between indian profit pool and global profit pool okay so some allocation has to go to international equities also because you can't participate in those profit pools like uh um, the best of the technology companies yeah. brand companies newest technologies um which are there in developed market like europe us and japan right. there is emerging market like india have a very different profit pool which is more infrastructure consumption and so on right um so you what you are also aware that india has a more promising story so right. indian equities can be more dominant but you also have some bit of uh flavor in the international equity but within indian equities i think um there is no point uh, trying to be too cute or you know thinking too much about small versus large i think i'm very sure in 5 years time this debate would subside substantially got it uh It, 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 uh, thanks for bringing up the international question by the way uh like if i were to extend your observation on the differences between asset classes or rather intra asset classes vanishing over a longer period of time as markets mature could the same be said for international diversification also in the sense that uh on a longer period of time i maybe i could be wrong but uh, uh the difference between india and international is not to be by international i mean let's say us it's it's the biggest equity market outside india but uh is not too much and also uh historically correlations between global markets tend to rise uh, as time progresses so is that a good enough argument against international uh, international diversification so there is definitely uh, um, an argument where india has a better fundamental story but um, when it comes to diversification what are we trying to do we are trying to avoid any tail risks which are country specific right market specific right when you diversify into rest of the world you are talking about two dozens of viable market where you are buying the best of the businesses and as i said you know this is not what you get in india right. you can't get i don't want to name companies but you can't get the um best uh, yeah tech companies or best brands and best consumer name you come platform companies uh, right. which where the consumption is happening in country like india but the profit is residing someone else somewhere else so to play india story also there are many multinational companies you can't participate in sitting in india and investing in india you know what <laughs> right. so india is far more global is far world is far more global so just because one company is uh, is sitting in one exchange or listed in one exchange does not means its value is coming from that domicile right? Right. so that those lines are also blurred and the bigger issue is that you know um, again we are talking about the proportions right india is a better story on balance so india should have a higher allocation got it but don't completely discard 
and take the cognizance of the tail risk which can come from anywhere and therefore some allocation should be in other high quality global profit pools got it uh, as a, a follow up so if i'm talking about global is us enough for me because uh, a lot of people make the argument that at least in, to the extent that uh, if you're looking at s&p 500 the us index i think something like 40 to 50% of the revenues inside s&p 500 come from global returns in the sense that they make the argument that if you are buying s&p 500 uh, or rather any uh, broad market us index you are essentially getting global exposure uh, what's your take on this like if i am thinking about international diversification is us enough or should i be looking broader and wider see when you're looking for very superior profit pool yes uh, there will be a lot of us company right. say in the case of tech etc but why to restrict ourselves to one country? Try to participate in the best of the profit pool, unique profit pools, like in materials, like in, for example, electric vehicle or rare earth minerals or some of the brands which are great global brands which are not US brands, right? For yeah. example, right? In consumer space or in capital goods space. So, my perspective is that you know US will be a dominant uh, share in the international portion, right. but there's no point restricting uh, to US alone. And what we have, I've also noticed that every 10 years, even the US versus the rest of the world, that leadership also changes. So, yeah, yeah. until you know, 2008, emerging was markets. about US, yeah. but 2000, 2010, about say emerging market, and 2010 right. to 20, about you know, again, US, right? So, every 10 years, that leadership also changes. So, if the core concept is about diversification, don't restrict yourself to one foreign geography. Diversify into best of the countries. Got it. On that note, uh, so uh, we are discussing static asset allocation, and we have uh, you know discussed the equity sleeve and how to go about uh, large, mid, small in domestic and also international. Just taking a slight detour and going back to gold. Uh, again, uh, playing devil's advocate, there's this argument to be made that gold has similar standard deviation as equity. Now, what's the point of mixing two risky asset classes? Shouldn't I just stick to, let's say, equity and gold? Uh, what's your take? The point is very simple. It's not about the returns. It's about the journey. Got it. They are perhaps give you the same return in rupee terms, right. but very different journey. You know, classic example, again, I'm repeating 2022 versus 2023. Right. A 50-50 portfolio would have been far more tolerable versus uh, binary portfolio of either gold or equity right right so it is the drawdown it is where the risk containment which which is where the real value lies right not in terms of excess return is is, is you know uh, your return point of stress that goes up return per se does not go up right got it it's it's better to not get cute to use uh i think yeah you, it's, it's a brilliant yeah. saying that you used yeah. got it now that takes care and in, in terms of Debt, do you have any views on, you know, the do's, don'ts? What's your overall framework about debt? Because my personal, if you ask me, I don't think people should worry too much about it. Just stick to some government bonds or something and then go on. And I think, I think it's, it's, it's a good approach because what we want from debt is safety. Right. It's some kind of anchor where, we, you know, the equity ship could, you know, hover around. Right? right. That this is not going to be very different versus your expectation you know, right. the rest of the portfolio can be in fixed income perhaps you need to take care of only two things and generally there are only two things in fixed income one is interest rate risk one is credit risk right. now 
you need to be conservative in these two parameters. So you minimize interest rate risk. Say for example, you decide that the average duration of the securities in overall blended portfolio may not be more than two and a half, three years. That means you are not exposing yourself to big interest rate gyrations. Right. Similarly, in terms of credit quality, you don't want to get into a permanent loss of capital in fixed income because that's a sin. So you want to, you know, get be in relatively better quality securities, government securities or similar quality, high rated securities as much as possible. So those are the two things to look at. Don't try to hit sixes when it comes to <laughs> fixed income. This you know, certain balls are there to take singles and fixed income, I think, in, uh, in that sense, serves that purpose well. No, no, I think you hit the nail on the head in the sense that I think most people sometimes uh, kind of miss the fact that you're the, the equity part of your portfolio is meant for taking risk. There's no point in taking risk in the other yeah, uh, part of your portfolio, which is not meant to yeah. take risk. So I think people absolutely. should uh, better stick to G6, state development loans or whatever it is. Uh, got it. So that, take, that takes care of uh, the static asset allocation approach. Uh, uh, moving on, uh, in, in terms of dynamic asset allocation, like uh, it, it, it's far more complicated and exotic sounding than static. Static is very boring. Like, what are we talking about in terms of dynamic yeah. asset allocation? And uh, also, I'm guessing there are multiple approaches inside dynamic asset allocation to yeah. expressing your views, systematic, unsystematic. So yeah. uh, please add some context. So as I said, you know, one is discretionary, take a view on macro, try to believe that you can predict the future. I think that's very risky uh, right. route to take. Other one is you believe in something which is faulty, but everyone else in the world believes in that. So you believe in that. Buy low, sell high based on some random integer called P ratio, right? You know, that number today. It has no meaning. Right? Right. Uh, so these are two approaches. You can make your models around it and think you have done a good job. That is one approach. The second approach is, you know, you understand that every, each of these things have some purpose. Got it. So why not try to... Uh, improve the odds see life is all about improving the odds absolutely in investing this is what you try to do so when you make a model you combine two or three different streams so you combine some bit of fundamental valuation a part of fundamental but suppose valuation does not take into account interest rates right you incorporate interest rates so you make your valuation parameters more robust so you use any of your choice parameters say one year 40 but also include parameter like what I call say equity risk premium. I'm getting into slight technicalities, okay. but equity risk premium is nothing but the difference between the earning yield and bond yield in a very okay. simplistic manner. Okay. So if in, earning yield is nothing but inverse of PE ratio. If PE is 20, earning yield is 5. By the way, what, so, what, what is earning yield telling me just to uh, simplify? It's just that, you know, what, what you are getting from, uh, uh, you know, if this, this is the valuation, what is the yield okay. of that equity as a security right now if the yield in proportion to bond yield is higher okay. that means equity is attractive ah uh, makes sense if this yield this gap is low or negative that means you are taking unnecessary risk the alternatives are far more attractive which is fixed income Got it. very simple now what interest rates to take is again a academic subject i prefer to take both in indian and inter international interest rates so US and India, because in every evening, all the investors look at both DI and FI figures. <laughs> so we want to know what's happening in Fed also and RBI also, because there are two kinds of investors. 
इंटेलेक्चुअल subject right. because whatever going up you participate in that and suddenly start to go down you exit from that and get into something else right, right. this is momentum got it but right. momentum works well in a shorter term time frame so you can have some element of momentum some right. element of global factors they will always be relevant so for example dollar is one variable okay. which is a very very powerful uh, asset location tool okay whenever the dollar is strong you have observed that equity markets in india underperform and globally it is underperform it underperform when a dollar is weak like it is weak today as we speak equity markets are doing well so rather than predicting things you can identify the right relationship which can improve your shorter term signals and overall models become more robust good in the shorter time period good in the longer time period because valuation will only matter in the extreme and you don't live in the extreme you live in a more normal environment in okay. a normal environment other factors will be far more useful got it uh, if i may uh, uh, prod you a little on the uh, other parameters like uh, in terms of evidence uh, because you've done a bunch of work on this what do we know about other parameters and you know what 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 does history tell us about other parameters that seem to so history tells us that um, price momentum is a very powerful factor but with a very short shelf life you can't take something which is working today has a better odds of performing over the next few weeks to months but you can't say it will keep performing for years right right so empirically it makes sense because some trends some recovery within a cycle start it lasts for few small small period of time but you can't take a view on that for for two years three year down the line right what what this trend would mean for my future returns so momentum works dollar i give you example you know um, it has a great inverse correlation with all risk assets globally including indian uh, large cap small cap mid caps on it and the third part is commodity themselves so i told you about gold and other commodity right so think of copper think of any other commodities they are financial products and real uh, factor production also right so think of copper as an example copper is a great uh signaling capability from a shorter to medium term time frame because if copper prices are going up it is telling you the economy is not in recession uh-huh. there is a growth recovery happening its application are multifold very pervasive and it also tells you that financial conditions are not tight they are actually loose that's why the illiquid asset like copper is doing well so copper goes up not only equity asset class goes up small caps tend to outperform large caps so there are a lot of value you can derive from different asset classes right as long as you are open 
and you are not doing heuristics. So there has to be economic logic why you are using it. And to honestly, at the end of the day, to each his own, basically where you are comfortable in how you are communicating to your end customer. So more complexity perhaps can increase the odds of outperformance, but it is difficult to communicate Good. and difficult to manage. Good. You know what I mean? Of course. Of so there is a trade-off. So at investor, they should be aware of these trade-offs: complexity. Uh, versus simplicity, dynamism versus staticness. There can be takers for both. If you were to give advice on making this choice between static versus dynamic, top down versus bottom, uh, what what would your advice be in terms of? Because here we are talking to uh, let's say lay investors like somebody like me who has no idea what you know dollar index does. Uh, what am I? Uh, what should I keep in mind when I'm making the choice between uh, various assets? Look, choices? more evolved the investor, more complex should be the strategy. If you think the investor is not very evolved, I think there's no point exposing him or her to something which is very complex at an outside looks like a black box. Because in our industry, it's not. I'm not directly communicating with my end client. There is a huge uh, chain. You know, I would call it a value chain. Uh, that there can be a huge loss of communication and the effectiveness of communication right in any complex strategy i think that's a risk that you know people if they don't understand goes you know the complexity and dynamism they may uh, because of behavioral reason other reason may perhaps exit at the wrong time or you know they may not understand why a particular strategy underperforms uh, it could be a more momentum driven strategy more value driven and and, and other point is there is no one strategy in dynamic asset looking. Everyone has their own take, belief systems, right? right? So for an end customer, it becomes too complex, you know. So static in that sense is definitely for more evolved kind of customer. Uh, sorry, uh, less right. evolved customer and dynamic is more for more. And um, um, it can do a good job, you know. It can do a pretty reasonable job in terms of what we are trying to achieve through a certificate. Got it. Uh, on that, on that uh, slight extension, you know, there are these famous rules of thumb. Uh, ben Graham famously said, "25 to 75 percent of your portfolio should be in equity." Conversely, you know, 75 to 25 percent in debt. Jack Bogle said, "Put 50 in equity, 50 in debt, and just you know, close your trading account and move on with your life." What's your What's your take on this uh, rules uh, of thumb? <laughs> I don't think there is a set formula. I don't think you know at this formula. Uh, for a longer time horizon, obviously, you can't completely ignore valuation. Right. Starting point matters. Right, right. right. Uh, not because in a very long period it will make much difference. Right. It will, but not much. But then uh, your ability and propensity to stay invested uh, may get compromised. You know? Today, if you talk to anyone and offer him 12% CAGR return with the kind of return people have made, this will <laughs> people will not be really excited. You know, but this would have been a a different conversation, maybe in 2018-19, for example. Right? Uh, so I think the uh, the mental conditioning is something which keeps changing, and therefore I don't think there's a set answer to it. Having said that, you know, equities is a very good asset class, is superior asset class in a pre-tax basis, and particularly after what has come in FY23 budget, post-tax basis there is a solid case for equity in favor of anything else. Uh, uh, and, you know, goes without saying the liquidity and other, uh, you know, facilities and advantages that it brings. So I don't have any doubt it's a superior asset class. Um, it should have much higher allocation than alternative asset classes. But, uh, but 
you know if it is as a location then you can't have 5% in fixed income because that will not move a needle right, right. or 10% or in, yeah. in, in, in you know combined fixed income and gold right so it has to be adequate so for example in one of our funds we keep 50% in indian equity and 50% something else so 20% could be in international equity 15 in debt 15 in gold and other commodity so you are aware of the where the returns would come from so clear right. returns at the same time you are uh, not doing asset allocation for the name sake so it has to be fine balance right uh, but i think it can't be domestic equity can't be more less than 50% if you think in medium to long term this uh, pardon me saying it but there's no alternative and i think <laughs> I, i strongly believe in that only game in town <laughs> <laughs> got it uh thank you so much ashutosh for taking the yeah. time this was absolute uh, was an absolute master class on asset allocation Uh, I learned no. a ton. I'm pretty sure the listeners will also take away a lot of things. Thank you so much for being gracious and taking the time. Thanks, thanks a lot. Thanks for the opportunity. Bye. I'll end Bye. the Bye. discussion. Bye.